Chapter 12 of The Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter 12 The Whim Completes Its Justification. Forgive me, he pleaded. It doesn't need to hurt you. I knew that love wasn't really mine. You gave it to the girl you thought I was. I knew without ever seeing you that you would have sooner cut out your tongue than write anything like that to a strange man. I should have seen at once that I was stealing something that didn't belong to me in taking that love. Maybe I wouldn't have put it from me, even if I'd seen it, for that love was very dear to me. Remember, I was never loved in my whole life by anyone but a mother who had been gone for so many years. Remember, there was no one else to claim that love from you. And remember, I thought you'd never need to know. I never dreamed you'd try to search me out. Your friendship was too dear for me to try. And, too, I knew you would consider me far beneath you. I could never hope to have you for the most distant friend, even if you knew all about me from childhood. My hope for your help and comfort and friendship was in letting you imagine me as a lonely old maid. Remember, you said it yourself. I simply didn't tell you what I was. But I don't take one bit of blame from myself. I see now that I ought to have been a good enough man to tell you at once. I should have missed a great deal, perhaps, as human vision sees it. Have missed even heaven itself, unless the very giving up of heaven for right had gained heaven for me. I can see it was all wrong. The Father even then spoke to my heart. He would have found me in some other way, perhaps. It would have been your doing all the same, and I'd have had the joy of thanking you even so for my salvation. But I didn't. And now my punishment is that I have brought this suffering and disappointment and chagrin upon you. And if I could, I'd wipe out of my life the joy that has come to me through companionship with you by letters, if by so doing I might save you from this problem. I have one more thing to tell you. Remember that only once, in so many words, have I dared to tell you this in writing, and then only in a hidden way, because I thought if you knew all about me, you wouldn't want me to say it. But now I must say it. My punishment is very great. Not only that you suffer, but that I've deserved your scorn. For I love you. I love you with every bit of unused love from my childhood days, along with all the love a man's heart has to give. I've loved you ever since the night I read from your letter that you loved me, a poor, forlorn, homely girl as you thought, and that you thought I loved you too. I knew at once that it was so. I want you to know that ever since that night I determined to be a person worthy of loving you. I never dared put it worthy of your love, because I knew that could never be for me. But I've tried to make myself a man you wouldn't be ashamed to have love you, even though you could never think of loving in return. And I've fallen short in your eyes, I know. But in what you didn't know of my life, I've been true. Can you, knowing all this, forgive me? Then I'll go out and try to live my life as you and God would have me do. And remember the joy that wasn't mine. But you gave me one joy that you can't take away. Jesus Christ is my friend. Now I've said all there is to say, and I must go away and let you rest. Can you find it in your heart to say you forgive me? Christy rested his elbow on the arm of her chair and dropped his head on his hand, while the firelight flickered and glowed among the waves of ruddy hair again. He had said all there was to say, and he felt he had no hope. Now he must go out. The strength seemed suddenly to have left him. It was very still in the room for a moment. They could hear each other breathe. 
At last Hazel's hand reached timidly out toward him and rested like a rose-leaf among the dark curls. It was his benediction, he thought, his dream come true. It was her forgiveness. He held his breath and didn't stir. And then, more timidly still, Hazel herself slipped softly from her chair to her knees before him. The other hand shyly stole to his shoulder, and she whispered, Christy, forgive me. I love you. Then Hazel's courage gave way, and she hid her blushing face against his sleeve. Christy's heart leapt up in all its manhood. He rose and drew her to her feet tenderly, and folded his arms around her, as one might enfold an angel come for shelter. Then he bent his tall head over until his face touched her lily face, and he felt that all his desolation was healed. At that instant steps were heard along the hall, lingering noisily around the door. A hand rattled the doorknob, while Victoria's voice, unnecessarily loud from Ruth's point of view, called, Is that you, Ruth? Are the others through dinner yet? Would you mind stepping back to the office and getting the evening paper for me? I want to look at something. Then the door opened and Victoria came smiling in. Time's up, she said playfully. The invalid mustn't talk another word tonight. Indeed, Victoria was most relieved that the time was up. She looked anxiously from Hazel to Christie to see whether she had done more harm than good, but Hazel leaned back smiling and flushed in her chair, and Christie, standing tall and serious, with an inspired look on his face, reassured her. She led him out by another hall than the one the family would come up by. She was in such a hurry to get him away without being seen that she scarcely said a word to him. But he didn't know it. Well, is it all right? She laughed nervously as they reached the side doorway. It is all right, he said with a joyous ring in his voice. Through the hall, out the door, and down the steps Christy Bailey went, his hat in his hand, his face exalted the moonlight laying on his head a kingly crown. He felt that he had been crowned that night, crowned with a woman's love. He looks as if he'd seen a vision, thought Victoria as she sped back to view the ruins, as she expressed it to herself. But Christie went on, his hat in his hand, down the long white road, looking up to the stars among the pines, wondering at the greatness of the world and the graciousness of God, onto his little cabin no longer filled with loneliness. There he knelt before the pictured Christ and cried, Oh, my father, I thank you. Quite early in the morning, Hazel requested a private interview with her father. Now it was a well-acknowledged fact that Judge Winship was completely under his daughter's thumb. Since the interview was a prolonged one, it was regarded as quite possible by the rest of the family party that there might be almost anything, from the endowment of a college settlement to a trip to Africa in process and all awaited the result with some restlessness. But after dinner there were no developments. Hazel seemed bright and ready to sit on the porch and be read to. Judge Winship took his umbrella and sauntered out for a walk, having declined the company of the various members of his family. Mother Winship calmed her anxieties and decided to take a nap. Christie went about his morning tasks joyously. Now and again his heart questioned what he had to hope for in the future, poor as he was but he put this resolutely down. He would rejoice in knowing Hazel's forgiveness and her love, even though it never brought him anything other than the joy of knowing. In this frame of mind he looked forward exultantly to the Sunday school hour. When the young men entered they wondered what had come over him. 
and the scholars greeted their superintendent with furtive nods and smiles. During the opening of the Sunday school, an elderly gentleman of fine presence came in, with iron-gray hair and keen blue eyes that looked piercingly out from under black brows. Christy had been praying when he came in. Christy's prayers were an index to his life. During the singing of the next hymn, the superintendent walked back to the door to give a book to the stranger, and hesitating a moment, asked half shyly, Will you say a few words to us or pray? Go on with your regular lesson, young man. I'm not prepared to speak. I'll pray at the close if you wish me to, said the stranger. Christie returned to his place, somewhat puzzled and embarrassed by the unexpected guest. He lingered after all were gone, having asked that he might have a few words with Christie alone. Christie noticed that Mortimer had bowed to him in going out, and that he looked back curiously once or twice. My name is Winship, said the judge brusquely. I understand, young man, that you have told my daughter you love her. The color rose softly in Christie's temples until it flooded his whole face but a light of love and daring came into his eyes as he answered the unexpected challenge seriously. I do, sir. Am I to understand, sir, by that, that you wish to marry her? Christie caught his breath. Hope and pain came quickly to defy one another. He stood still, not knowing what to say. He realized his helplessness, his unfitness for the love of Hazel Winship. Because, went on the relentless judge, in my day it was considered a very dishonorable thing to tell a young woman you loved her unless you wished to marry her, and if you do not, I wish to know at once. Christie was white now and humiliated. Sir, he said sternly, I mean nothing dishonorable. I honor and reverence your daughter, yes, and love her, next to Jesus Christ. And involuntarily his eyes met those of the picture on the wall, whom she has taught me to love. But since your daughter has told you about my love, she must have also told you about the circumstances under which I told it to her. If I hadn't been trying to clear myself from a charge of deceit in her eyes, I would never have let her know the deep love I have for her. I have nothing to offer her but my love. Judge Winship, is this the kind of home to offer your daughter? It's all I have. There was something pathetic, almost tragic, in the wave of Christie's hand as he looked around the cabin. Well, young man, it's more comfortable than the place my daughter's father was born in. There are worse homes than this, but perhaps you're not aware that my daughter will have enough of her own for two. Christie threw his head back with his eyes flashing, though his voice was sad. Sir, I will never be supported by my wife. If she comes to me, she comes to the home I can offer her, and it would have to be here, now, until I can do better. As you please, young man, answered the judge shortly but a grim smile was upon his lips, and his eyes twinkled as if he were pleased. I like your spirit. From all I hear of you, you are quite worthy of her. She thinks so, anyway, which is more to the point. Have you enough to keep her from starving if she did come? Oh, yes. Christie almost laughed in his eagerness. Do you think, oh, it cannot be, that she would come? She'll have to settle that question, said her father, rising. You have my permission to talk with her about it. As far as I can judge, she seems to have a fondness for the logs with the bark on them. Good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. I'm glad to have met you. You have a good Sunday school, and I respect you. Christie gripped his hand until the old man almost cried out with the pain, but he bore it smiling grimly and went on his way. 
and Christy, left alone in his little glorified room, knelt once more and called joyously, My father, my father. This is perfectly ridiculous, said Ruth Summers, looking dismally out of the swiftly moving train window at the vanishing oaks and pines. The wedding guests going off on the bridal tour and the bride and bridegroom staying behind. I can't think whatever has possessed Hazel, married in white cashmere under a tree, and not a single thing belonging to a wedding, not even a wedding breakfast. You forget the wedding march, said Victoria, a vision of the organist's fine head coming to her, and the strawberries for breakfast. A wedding march on that old organ, sneered Ruth, with a row of children for an audience and sand for a background. Well, Hazel was original, to say the least. I hope she'll settle down now and do as other people do. She won't, said Victoria positively. She'll keep on having a perfectly lovely time all her life. Do you remember how she once said she was going to take Christy Bailey to Europe? Well, I reminded her of it this morning. She laughed and said she hadn't forgotten it. It was the one thing she married him for. He looked down at her wonderingly and asked what that was, how he does worship her. Yes, and she's perfectly infatuated with him. I'm sure one would have to be to live in a shanty. I don't believe I could love any man enough for that, she said reflectively, studying the back of Tom Winship's well-trimmed head in the next seat. Then you better not get married, said Victoria. She looked dreamily out of the window at the hurrying palmettos and added, One might, if one loved enough. Then she was silent, thinking of a promise that was made to her a promise of better things, signed by a true look from a pair of handsome, courageous eyes. Christy and Hazel watched the train as it vanished from their sight, and then turned slowly toward their home. It's a palace to me now that you are in it, my wife. Christy pronounced the words with wonder and awe. You dear old organ, it was you that did it all, said Hazel, touching the keys tenderly and turning to Christie with tears of joy standing in her eyes, she put her hands in his and said, My husband. Then, as if by common consent, they knelt together, hand in hand, beneath the picture of the Christ, and Christie prayed. And now his prayer began. Our Father. End of chapter 12 End of the story of a whim by Grace Livingston Hill